This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host and self-confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go. Hello, and welcome back to FinTech Recap. My name is Alex Johnson. I'm the creator of FinTech Takes. And on the other line, as always, is the publisher of FinTech Business Weekly, our favorite investigative reporter, Jason Mikula. Jason, how are you, bud? Crow understands that certain moments matter more for FinTech companies, whether it's partnering with a bank, moving into a new market, or going public. Visit www.crow.com fintech to discover how Crow can help fintech companies like yours find value in volatility. I'm doing pretty well. Thanks. Yeah, somebody actually asked me about my mostly joke LinkedIn title, which is Chief Sleuthing Officer. Yes. And I had to explain like what that meant and why I put it on there. Yeah, but I'll take it. Uh, yeah, I am doing well. And we actually have a very special guest who I will let introduce himself. Matthew Goldman is joining us to talk about a number of stories today. Matt, thank you so much. Why don't you give a quick, quick bio for folks who may not know you? Yeah, thanks for having me. Matthew Goldman, I'm the founder of a small fintech advisory firm called Totavi, which I started earlier this year. I've been in the fintech space for almost 20 years at program managers like Green Dot, at banking as a service providers, kind of everything in between. Started a few companies, sold a few companies, and been uh, an executive at a public company on the card marketing side. So love to do a lot of stuff. And then I write a substack called Cards for the Win. Cards for the Win. We're big fans of Card for the Win. I hear it fintech takes, and I think Jason, I speak for you too, right? That was not the first thing that came to mind with FTW. So I'm glad that yeah. I now know what that stands for. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that, this, that, is that family, that this is a family podcast. So well, and, and I will say like, not to go down this rabbit hole, but I think you start these newsletters with like, oh, would be like a funny name or like you just sort of pick something and you don't realize that it's going to become some larger thing. And yeah. I know many people, including myself, who if we had a do over on names, we might at least spend a little more time at the whiteboard if no other reason. But the newsletter itself, we love, we're big fans of, um, as Matthew indicated from his introduction, your go-to resource for all things relating to cards of any kind. I mean, I'm an expert on fintech generally, but when it comes to cards and even the kind of smallest, teeniest little nuances about reward programs or goofy little features of specific cards, your newsletter is where I turn. And I think for a long time now, actually, we've known each other at least via the internet, I think going back to bank raid and wallaby and some of these other yeah. things that you've done in the past so it's great to have you on the podcast yeah i'm very pleased to be here thank you well as we typically do in this podcast we're going to take turns sort of sharing some stories from the last month or so and we matthew and i were very insistent that jason lead off today because he's been sleuthing all over the place so uh jason you get the first story yeah, so normally we have one single story, but I'm calling this section the uh, bass grab bag, given that there's sort of like a number of interesting things that have come out lately that that I'm curious to get both of your perspectives on. Uh, so trying to run through this relatively quickly, I'm going to assume most folks who are who are listening to this probably read the piece or at least saw the headline that I put out a couple weeks back about banking as a service platform solid, 
which works or did work with Evolve, that relationship winding down at the end of September, as well as with CBW and a bank I had honestly never heard of until looking into the story, Lewis and Clark. So the very quick recap is basically twofold. One, people familiar with the matter um, uh, accused Solid of faking revenue related to uh, its interchange and clients, and that was part of how it raised a Series B. So sort of big problem bucket one, which we probably don't need to get into, and then sort of problem bucket two, which is, you know, what happens for Solid now that Evolve is, you know, no longer serving as its bank partner and CBW is operating under a consent order from 2020. And my understanding of the relationship with Lewis and Clark was that it's only agreed to take a single program and provide a much more constrained set of capabilities. So actually, breaking news, even today, two programs that were running on Solid and Evolve announced that they are shutting down. One called BuffPay, which is like a prepaid debit card aimed at, at gamers, and one called Starlight Money, which positioned itself as a financial OS for Web3 teams. So I think particularly the programs with any crypto component are going to have a very hard time finding a new bank partner that's willing to work with them. So that's sort of chunk one. I promise I'll be faster. Chunk two, more briefly, you know, I think everyone will probably remember the big fanfare when Stripe Treasury launched partnering with Evolve, but also with Goldman Sachs. And Goldman Sachs at that point recently launched transaction banking business. You know, it's now nearly three years later, uh, and it turns out only two clients have actually built anything on that, which now that I stop and look, I suppose is not surprising given, you know, my personal experience with Goldman's compliance, which was in a different division, admittedly. Uh, but as far as the thoroughness and time-consuming processes, it, it doesn't surprise me that most of Stripe's Bass customers ended up on Evolve and, and very little ended up ever getting built with Goldman. And then purely as, as a thought piece that pops up in my head every once in a while, this habit of issuing secured charge cards that are really fundamentally debit programs, given all of the bubbling about interchange, which we're going to get to later, like, I'm really wondering you know, if and when somebody's going to push back on that product structure, given it feels like a fairly cynical play just to get the higher interchange rate. Now that I finished my monologue, Alex, do you have any hot thoughts on these different stories? Yeah, I mean, I think that the solid evolve stuff is, seems very part and parcel of a larger trend that you've been very consistently documenting over the last year and a half, two years, where... There was just a rush into banking as a service by banks that didn't have a good grasp on what their responsibilities were and sort of the compliance requirements, middleware platforms that were trying to sort of make money during the gold rush. And, you know, I mean, I think that as it relates to like faking growth numbers and those kind of things, I mean, we saw that with Frank, that JP Morgan Chase bought, like there, there is a bit of a relic of 2020 and 2021 in fintech that I think we're starting to kind of catch up to now where there was just so much pressure to grow. There was so much pressure to grab another round of funding. I mean, some of these funding rounds that you go back and look at it, 2020 and 2021 are astronomically bigger than even the most successful companies today are raising. And so I think it speaks to just sort of the general pressure there. But the problem is, as you sort of outlined in that piece, when you sort of marry up that pressure that 
fintech investors were sort of heaping on startups during those times, with banking as a service specifically, you create all kinds of problems for yourself, right? Because if J.P. Morgan Chase had done their due diligence, the, the Frank thing wouldn't have been an issue. It just would have been someone who was lying about their numbers. But banking as a service is tough because there's a lot of risk that you can sign up for in terms of onboarding programs and just sort of taking way more risk than you should. And it can quickly get away from you. And I think Evolve is kind of the poster child for that, where you know they have some good programs that they run, but they have a lot of bad ones that they're apparently now in the process of offboarding. So I think that's pretty interesting. As it relates to Stripe and Goldman Sachs, I mean, I think my overall takeaway is just that like banking as a service is hard no matter who you are, is kind of my takeaway. The other thing you didn't mention about Goldman, although I know you covered it in your newsletter, is they were sort of getting some pushback from the Fed on their own transaction banking and banking as a service programs and the sort of risk monitoring and compliance work that they were doing there. So between that, between what was the no KYC card that Stripe enabled? Um, oh, it wasn't. I, I can never keep track it of was, the names. Um, was I it forget. Lasso? Lasso. Yeah. Lasso. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Lasso kind of sneaking through the door with Stripe. Like, I think that regardless of how technically sophisticated or big you are, it seems like some of these dynamics in Bass are ones that almost everyone is sort of tripping over to a degree. So I don't know. I think that's interesting. I would defer to to Matthew on the charge card since that's your world. What what do you think? Well, before <laughs> we get to the charge card, we can talk about Bass a little more. I mean, I think, yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. one, of the, one of the challenges here, actually, it's funny with Jason, I think with the, with the Stripe, Goldman, Evolve thing, right? You're kind of seeing both sides of Evolve said yes to a lot of programs very rapidly. They said yes to a lot of middleware. Like if you go back and you look at all the press releases Evolve has issued over the last three years, it's astounding. And and five years ago, no one in fintech had heard of this bank, right? Like they kind of came out of nowhere. They came up really, really big. I mean, some of these other folks are mentioning, you know, who are doing programs, you know, whether it's Pathword or Bancor have been doing this for, you know, 20 years. So they said yes to everything. It gets them a lot of volume, but then they didn't build out the compliance functions. And then Goldman, you know, is probably being much more cognizant, even if they are getting in some trouble, maybe like they're being more cautious and that reduces the growth. And I think you highlighted that in your story about this, Jason, the like, if you're being slower and more cautious, you're actually just losing business. And this, to tie it into our future topic about, you know, interchange, this all comes back to Durban, in my opinion, like when I started in this industry, we all partnered with big banks. Like when I was at Green Dot, before Green Dot owned a bank, our partners were GE Money, now Synchrony, Citibank, and Synovus, like various charters that Synovus owns. They own like 35 of them or whatever. And they were big, serious banks who had real, you know, compliance teams. And I talked to the bank compliance team like almost every day, right? Like we had a very tight relationship about what was going on. It was very high quality. Now you have over, I mean, I track over 70, you know, fintech issuers, something like 65 of which, you know, have less than a billion dollars in assets or something, right? How are they going to have the compliance people to manage all these cards? And this Stripe idea of, hey, in seven lines of code, you can accept a credit card, like, sure, but you should not be able to issue a card in seven lines of code. It's a way more complex product. And we all tried to enable that, and there's just no way to manage it sufficiently because there's always people in gold rushes like we're talking about fintech but it could be any other topic i mean sure it's going on in ai now right people lying about their startups or breaking the rules or whatever there's always bad actors in any industry and when industries get really you know hectic or really start growing you get this explosion of that i mean there's other startups faking their revenue numbers in other industries i am sure 
but it's more serious in banking. It's a bigger deal, right? Because we're, this is supposed to be an area where the compliance is stronger. I totally agree with that. I mean, I think to your point about Durban, that's a really good call out, right? Because one of the the enablers of fintech has not only been Durban exempt interchange as a business model or an easy way to generate revenue, but it's also, hey, we're going to marry up fintech companies that are moving really fast and are staffed by people who've never worked in financial services before and are under a lot of pressure to grow with community banks that have no experience dealing with startups or technology. And so it was like this really weird marriage of two different cultures enabled by Durban, whereas, you know, there is sort of an interesting alternate universe where, and I've wanted to write this piece in the newsletter at some point, but like, what's the alternate universe where there is no Durban amendment? And like, how does fintech evolve? And, you know, I mean, a lot of the overarching macro trends probably drive technology and startups into financial services. But if they have to team up with large banks to enable those services, it evolves in a different way. So I, I think the Durban call, it's a really good one. You do need some of both, right? Because if we're all still Synovus and Citibank and Synchrony, almost everything would be deemed too small and not worth the time. I mean, you're still seeing that. Right, you, have, right. you have JP Morgan doing some stuff in FinTech, right, providing some services, but they're not going to try something new. And to, you know, weave this into the like secure charge place, like we're all trying to innovate. And if you're innovating, you're in a gray zone by nature, right? If you followed the rules exactly as they were, you would be doing something that everyone already understands. And so I think there needs to be that balance. And what's what I'm interested to see is the growth of both credit, consumer credit, as well as commercial cards across all types, you know, debit, prepaid, et cetera, because those aren't subject to Durban and the bigger banks can play in fintech there and they don't have this massive revenue disadvantage. Because in this whole merchants and networks fight that resulted in politicians stepping in, we created this weird, you know, unnecessary aberration where we're like, only community banks can make money here. And somehow that's better for everyone. And, and I think there are some really great small banks who have great compliance teams and run very, very clean fintech programs. And there are obviously some who are like, someone told me I could make money this way, so let's go try it out. And it doesn't go well. And I mean, I think to Alex, to your point, you know, if in some alternate Earth 2, where, where multiverse, the fintech you know, multiverse, you yeah. know, where Durban didn't exist and, you know, more of these partnerships were with big banks, like I don't think you would have seen some of the product innovation that we have seen. I mean, actually, as you guys were chatting, it reminded me of a, a tweet thread from Matt Janica or at Regulatory Nerd for anyone who doesn't already follow him on Twitter about sort of finding the gray areas because that's where you can actually do product innovation, right? And I think one of the examples he used was BNPL, where it's like, okay, this, you know, because of its structure, either as non-interest bearing, you know, and or fewer than four payments, it falls outside TILA. And, and you know, on the one hand, you could take a point of view and be like, oh, this is regulatory arbitrage, bad, evil. On the other hand, it's like, Matt, to your point, like if you're following, coloring exactly within the lines, the product you make is going to look like every other commodity product in that category, right? And so I think, you know, smaller banks, one, are more willing to take on those smaller programs that wouldn't make a difference in the balance sheet or the P&L of Goldman, of JPMC, of Synovus, and, you know, maybe are a little bit more risk on intentionally or unintentionally than some larger players, you know, have been or, or would be. 
Yeah. And that's to your point about secured charge cards. I think a super interesting example of this because there's both debit cards masquerading as credit cards. You know, there's cards like Extra, right? Or Fizz that are functionally a debit card, but report credit worthiness to bureaus. And those companies do take losses. Like just because you have money in your checking account today when I authorize the transaction does not mean the ACH works tomorrow. I think those- Yeah, Jason Varro- Varo's one that like has that exact setup and they have loss rates that would surprise you, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of money being lost there and Fizz in particular, I think is interesting, right? The Card Act made it so it's very hard to get college students cards, right? But college students want cards. So they're like marketing sort of a credit card on college, college kids that's actually a debit card. And then you have the flip side, which is, you know, a secured charge card product that looks like a debit card with, you know, next day pay or something or seven-day pay, you know, things like Telmo. You see a lot of this in business as well. I actually think some of this is just driven by the cost of capital right now. Like people are like, I can't afford to give people free money for 30 days. And if if you think about on the business side, you know, you're looking for just better payments management, right? The stuff that Ramp and Brex are doing around like uploading receipts and categorizing things. Like that's valuable for a business who maybe was just using a debit card, but it's all very gray. It's all very intermingled and, it, you know, the different networks have slightly different rules. There's all this stuff like a bank can approve a debit card program, but a network has to approve a credit card program. So like different interpretations can exist at different banks in different ways and you get different answers when you talk to different folks. It's like also what cards are commercial, what cards are consumer. If I ask five banks about a particular program, whether it's like a commercial card, which gives me this much higher interchange or it's a consumer card, I will probably get, you know, like a 50-50 split on the answers. And that is the innovation and it's hard, but it, you know, it's going to, as these programs grow, the networks, I think primarily are going to drive like new rules and say, this is the ultimate answer and force programs to, to align, to change bins, you know, to change setups, et cetera. Yeah. It reminds me a lot of the bureaus, you know, speaking of credit builder cards, like there are these legacy institutions that have rules for how these different things need to be categorized. And then new innovation comes in. And as we've been talking about kind of blends those different rules together and finds exceptions and finds loopholes. And at a small scale, it's not a big deal. It's like, oh, okay, you know, these guys are cute. Let's see what happens. But then enough piles in behind them and suddenly you're like, okay, now we have a problem. And I, I think, Jason, going back to your earliest question, I would hazard a guess that as we're about to get into, there will be some pressure coming back on some of these fintech programs maybe sort of over-optimizing interchange relative to what the original rules were set for. And, you know, I tend to think of Visa and MasterCard as just like keeping a huge book of all of the points of leverage that they have. So every negotiation they go into, they're like, okay, we can give back this, but we don't want to give back this. And so I'm sure all of these things will just become points in a larger negotiation. But Matthew, do you want to take us to our next story? We've been sort of hinting at it for a while here. Yeah. So let's talk about interchange, the thing that everyone likes to argue about. So a couple weeks ago, I guess at the end of August, the Wall Street Journal reported that both Visa and MashCard were going to increase interchange over the coming six months. They were originally scheduled to do this back at the start of the pandemic. And then they said, oh, we won't do it because you know, the economy is in, in rough shape. This got everyone fired up. I wrote about it. I think everyone wrote about it. And then there was not only the like, hey, is this a fair thing to do? And why does interchange need to go up? But there was also the they're both doing it at the same time as is there collusion, everyone's favorite word, right? So I think what's super interesting right now is that MasterCard 
published a letter basically saying, actually, we're not. Those are just untrue rumors. Now, we haven't seen anything similar from Visa, and that may still be that they're going to change their rates. But interchange, to me, is always this challenging top because like it could be zero and merchants would probably still complain about it. Like it's not that there is a proper level. And if you look at the actual cost of accepting payments for large merchants, like they don't want a bunch of cash in their stores either. It's actually more expensive, right? Like trucking cash in and out of stores is super expensive. If you're, you know, a Macy's or something, or, or even a gas station, right? You introduce theft risk and other things. Checks can go bad. So like is 3% fair? I don't know, but some charge is fair. I certainly think there's there's value to it that the networks do, but it's an easy way to get people fired up. And if you're Walmart or Amazon, you know, you're going to want to complain about this. And it feels expensive, right? People like don't want to pay it. I don't know. And I think there there is real competition. That was MashPro's other point is that it's getting more competitive. And like there is Zelle and PayPal and Venmo right now. And you know, there's a lot of small merchants who are saying like, pay me by Zelle or, you know, home contractors or things. I don't think you're going to pay by Zelle at Walmart. I think the logistics are too complex, right? But I think there is real competition for immediate real-time payments. But as we're seeing, some of those systems don't have the consumer protections that Interchange ultimately pays for. Disputing a Zelle charge is a big, big problem. It's very hard to, to win those kinds of things. Whereas if you buy something from a merchant on your MasterCard and it doesn't work, like as a consumer, you're most likely to win that. Who pays for it, whether it's the merchant or the bank, you don't really care. Sometimes it goes either way, but you get your money back and that's some of the value the card network provides. It's like, uh, I think of interchange almost as like everyone's paying a tiny bit of insurance on their purchases all the time that they don't really opt into, but it, it works, right? Like I'd rather probably pay 1%, 2% extra on all my goods and not suddenly lose $1,000. I also think that if interchange were zero, merchants would not reduce their prices. That's just lobbying. We know that's true, right? Because we, uh, we do. I think that's one of those ones where like, we've seen this movie in other geographies. And if you look at Australia or you look at any other areas where they've gone in and made significant, and we studied the impact of the Durban Amendment, the money does not flow into consumers' pockets, right? And I think that to your point, Matthew, like one of the things that drives me a little crazy about this is, this is a strange analogy, so stick with me here. But like in the same way that the vast majority of people in the U.S. who have student loan debt, it's like less than $20,000 of student loan debt. So it's a chunk of change, but it's not like some massive burden on their overall earnings. And then there's like 10% that have student loan debt that's over like $100,000. And you sort of, when you look at like, oh, we should cancel student loan debt, we should pause student loan debt, it's hard to look at those ratios and not see like, a very small vocal minority of people who are advocating for something that's not necessarily the best policy for everyone. And I kind of feel the same way about interchange, where it's like, all merchants demand that interchange rates be lowered because this isn't fair. And it's like, really, it's Walmart, it's Amazon, it's a few very large merchants that are really in a great position in terms of being a business and being able to sell. And now they're to the point where they have such scale that it's about optimizing payment acceptance costs and doing all these things to sort of add a couple of zeros to a bottom line. You know, you talk to like the average merchant or small business, they don't care about payment acceptance costs overly, right? Like they want to sell more. Like I think a good example of this actually is buy now, pay later. Buy now, pay later is more expensive to merchants, generally speaking, than accepting card payments. The reason that merchants love it is that it drives incremental sales. 
And so I, I think that when we think about like what are the problems that merchants have and you know how high on that list is payment acceptance costs, you have to sort of segment it by the type of merchant. So this is a long way of saying I'm a bit of a cynic as it relates to this particular issue. Jason, how do you feel about it? I mean, I think that the Matthew raises a really excellent point that I think is too often absent from the conversation, which is what's the alternative? And people tend to talk about interchange or the the total cost of merchant acquiring as if the cash cost were zero. But as Matthew pointed out, like it is not, you know, taking a payment in cash in person and having that either deposited at the end of each day at a bank or, you know, if you're talking about large volumes of cash, armored, you know, armored car services, not to mention the additional logistical complexity of doing accounting for physical cash, risk of theft, insider theft from employees, risk of theft from robbery. It's not that, oh, well, the alternative to taking cards is a 0% cost to accept cash payments, which... Well, and, and go 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 ask, like, cannabis merchants, right? Like, th- that's the perfect counterexample to this. Like, they're begging to be able to take cards. I actually saw a study, I can't, you know, pull it up right now, that said that the cost of the cash is 3 to 5%, like, for a major company. I think, <laughs> I think to your point yeah. about the merchant types, there's, there's two things I think really get people fired up because one is the super small merchant, right? If the owner is taking cash to the bank every day, it's a one, you know, like they don't view their time as having value, I guess. So they view that as zero cost. You know, I also see places like I was thinking about my mechanic, like they stopped accepting checks 10 years ago because they're like, we get burned, right? Like this is, I'd rather pay, you know? And then there's this idea that it's like, if your margins are terrible, then you're like, wow, 3% would make my margin slightly less terrible. Like if my margin is 3%, this is the gas station excuse, right? My margin is already 3%. So I want that other 3%. Like your margin is still going to be 3% because everyone's just going to change their prices or whatever is going to happen. That's not really affected. And if you think way back to like when credit cards started, I mean, think about like a, a classic department store, right? Like before the Walmarts, when you were shopping at your local department store, they maybe had one or two people in the back running credit accounts for the community. They were taking all the credit risk. They were probably paying 7 to 10%. Yeah, I mean, their their bookkeeping costs were insane, right? Insane. Yeah, like back if you go, yeah, if you go read those like old stories about when Visa and Mastercard got started, they were going and selling to those small merchants, and like the merchants were like, "Oh my god!" So you're telling me I don't need to have eight bookkeepers in the back keeping track of all this stuff? Yeah, and and the reality is, Amazon and Walmart are already striking their own deals. Costco striking their own deal. Right. Amazon will get these like super secret incentives where they pay less than a certain card type for 90 days. If you've run a card program, you've seen this because there's so much volume on Amazon, it will actually affect your inter- your like overall interchange rate. No one wants to acknowledge that these things are true, but you can like do the math basically on your transactions. And so it's all a little bit of a scam. Like Jeff Bezos and company don't really need an extra 1%. They're okay. You know, so I think like there is competition. Obviously, I love cards. I think like the economy works so much better with cards in play. And, you know, if if we want to introduce some additional guidelines, like that's okay. But things like Durban have already, as we talked about our first thing, they created they have these weird knock-on, you know, consequences. And that money's gonna come out of somewhere. And people love their rewards. Like, do not mess with middle class Americans and their rewards cards. That's a good way to get it. <laughs> unelected from office. Crow gets fintech. For decades, Crow specialists have watched this industry evolve and helped companies navigate the moments that matter most. Whether finding new sources of funding to fuel growth, 
or responding to complex regulations. Visit www.crow.com fintech to find out how Crow works with fintech companies like yours to help uncover value in volatility. So there's something yeah. I, I saw out in the wild that I want to get uh, Matthew's opinion on. I had not seen this before. I was buying a airline ticket at KLM, which is the Dutch airline. And at checkout, I wanted my rewards, Matthew. Uh, and so instead of paying with my local bank account, I was using my Chase Sapphire card. And when you chose to pay with a credit card, it first asked for the bin, the first six digits, and used that to tell you a specific amount that they would surcharge you based on, I, I'm assuming, based on the bin of the card. And so it was like, I type in my bin, it says it was an expensive flight. It says the surcharge is 45 euros. And then I'm like, okay, my rewards are worth more than 45 euros. So like, I'm going to go ahead and pay for this. Uh, I have never seen that. And, and I, I think I posted it online and somebody was like, PSD2, et cetera, you can't surcharge for cards. Like I'm looking at my receipt now and it literally says payment surcharge for using for using a credit card. I haven't seen that specific with bin types and that sounds dangerous because like everyone's bin tables are always slightly out of date. I feel like there's some real technical challenges there. In the US, there's these rules around, you can provide a cash discount, but you can't normally have a surcharge except for the government. And then, yeah, people do that. Like, like a lot of, you know, folks in the rewards community, it's like, oh, am I going to pay my taxes with my credit card? Like if, yeah, because I might actually make money that way because of the surcharges, you know, 1.85%. And I know my card gets me 2% cash back or whatever. But I do think that I'm surprised that that's being done. And I'm no PSD2 expert, but I think that would be a problem. And I would think that that won't last. I mean, you all see merchants doing things they're not supposed to do all the time, right? Like it's like, you know, you walk into a store and it's like, hey, you need to, you know, spend at least ten dollars to use a credit card. Like, well, that's a violation of their merchant agreement. But are you going to argue with the store or run over that? Like, no. every bodega in New York City, you got to say it's yeah. twenty dollars, not ten dollars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's all that. There's all that stuff, right? Or like, did you sign the back of your card? Like, you don't really have to do that stuff, you know. So merchants get into these different little. Like it's an imperfect system. There's millions and millions of merchants. They're not all going to follow the rules directly. But that's super interesting that, a, that KLM is doing something like that. But I think you made the right mathematical choice, for sure. I mean, the MasterCard thing, and we can do one more bit on this and, and move on to our next one, is interesting you know, against the backdrop of the Credit Card Competition Act, which like, I'm going to admit like, I have not gone deep on that because my assumption is the dysfunctional American Congress will not pass it. But, you know, I don't know, it could get attached to a must-pass bill, who knows. I mean, Matthew, I'm curious to hear your point of view being much more of an expert. You know, what difference, if any, would the Credit Card Competition Act make, given that, as far as I understand it, the main component is the requirement for larger issuers to enable their cards to be able to route onto unaffiliated networks? Like, is that actually going to make any difference in what merchants are paying? Yeah, I, I think what'll be interesting is the alternate routing component, the secondary network component, like it's taken 10 years for that to get anywhere on the debit side. It could make card programs really complex to manage. And of course, merchants will need to do a lot of work. If it's really about acquiring merchants for the secondary networks through reduced fees, that's going to come down to the bottom line of the bank and they're going to reduce benefits for consumers. And I think people really care about that. I mean, there's been all this news the last week about 
Delta and their changes and how, you know, whatever it is, like 1% of all GDP runs through the Delta card. And, you know, the Atlantic published a piece that airlines are just banks, which like, I think we've actually known for a while that like airlines are loyalty programs that happen to sell flights on the side. That stuff, like, but people, nothing motivates people more than like a free trip. It's, it's the special thing for them to do. It's aspirational. It feels like an accomplishment. And I think whether it's good policy or not, I think it's gonna be very hard for you know, that to kind of go away. And it will have those same follow on things like Durban made free checking disappear for many people. And that is that a good thing? Was that consumer centric or merchant centric? I would argue as merchant centric. And it just, you know, it opened space for folks like Chime to come in and, and present alternative free checking product that's not quite the same. So I agree. I don't think it's going to get passed. That would not be my prognostication. I think also, It'll be extremely complex to implement if it does, and it will take years before all the rulemaking and implementations are done and there's a, a real effect. And I think just to put a capper on that and then we can jump to the next story, the routing thing is just another example of really good for big, sophisticated merchants that would know how to turn that on right away, bad for everybody else, right? And so I think with that, our auditions for becoming expert witnesses in the next lawsuit against Visa and MasterCard. We, we can stop there now and submit our tapes. Do you want to jump to the next story? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so um, this one's me sticking on the theme of payments. Varo, our favorite challenger bank, recently launched a new product, I guess, called Varo to Anyone. So it's basically a P2P payments function and the way that it is described is that, read you the quote, says, unlike most popular payment apps, Varo to Anyone is specifically designed to send payments to anyone with no fees, backed by an FDIC-insured national bank. The speed, cost-effectiveness, and security inherent in Varo to Anyone was made possible by Varo's national bank charter and distinctive tech bank business model. So... I don't have problems with a lot of the statements that were uh, made in that quote, but I think the thing that's interesting about this one is this actually comes on the heel of Varo enabling Zelle for its customers, which at the time I thought was kind of interesting because obviously Zelle is the S-owned bank alternative to the fintech P2P apps that everyone talks about and uses. And I suppose they were able to sort of become a part of the Zelle network because they actually, as they just referenced in that quote, are a bank. So I was surprised, I'll be honest, to see that they were adding in, I guess, an alternative to their own P2P capability. I don't really have a good sense of why they're doing this. I guess, and Matthew, maybe you're the one to, to comment on this. My educated guess, given that this is something that you enable by sending it to anyone with a debit card, is that this is something running on the card network, so something like a Visa Direct or something in that neighborhood. Is that your understanding? What do you think about this new offering? That is my guess as well, is that this is a Visa Direct or MasterCard Send, you know, debit card funding model, like how folks are used to putting money into or out of Venmo or PayPal wallets instantly. And that is not cheap. That is pretty expensive for whoever is paying that fee to do. I think a lot of people think it's free because Venmo or PayPal don't always charge you, but the reality is that it's pretty expensive and Venmo and PayPal are just eating that cost. So I assume the same thing is happening here where Vero is, I don't have an account, I haven't seen it. I mean, you could do some interesting stuff like try to drive people through Zelle first, which is also not free, but everyone's providing for free. 
And I don't know, it's not as unique maybe as it sounds in the sense like there's a lot of capability to send money this way. What usually folks are doing is only allowing consumers to use Visa Direct or MasterCard Send to send money between their own accounts. So there's obviously some more complexity with sending it peer-to-peer and there's a lot more compliance to do and that could be interesting. But I don't know if this is a hook. Like everyone feels like everyone has Zelle. So that's like, I'm unclear what they're trying to get out of this versus if they already did Zelle and people are using Venmo anyways, like where does this go and what does it do for them? Yeah, setting aside the the cost piece, which, yeah, if we're operating under the assumption that it, it's Visa Direct or, or, you know, MasterCard equivalent, it's not cheap. It's like, what gap is this filling that a user couldn't already do via Zelle or Cash App and Venmo? And I'm still scratching my head because I don't have an answer to that question. Like, who am I trying to send money to that I can't already reach on one of those platforms? Well, and, and to that point, like, what sort of knock-on value does this have for Varo, right? Because, like, I think the the original benefit, right, to, like, a cash app or someone like that was the virality of P2P meant that, hey, if you want me to pay you back five bucks, then you have to download this too. And so it was a really sort of low-cost, effective customer acquisition hack at the time. But, of course, that was when people didn't really have a lot of established P2P options a, as we pointed out, a lot of people already use Venmo, Zelle, and Cash App, so this isn't really additive to that. And B, because it's sending it to a debit card and you don't have to download Varo to be able to get money back out, I don't really understand why Varo is spending money to enable this function. It's like, great, so now it's easier for me to get my money out of Varo and send it to a non-Varo account, and I'm going to pay a lot of money to enable that. I don't really get it, and I guess, Jason, going back to something you've written about before and have covered for a long time... They're not exactly in a great position in terms of like being able to spend money on things that are maybe not core features. And then not only not core features, not revenue generating, right? Like right. The next call report, I think, will be available at the end of October. And I weirdly know that and pay very close attention to I was going to say, you've got it circled on your calendar, man. I know you do. <laughs> I weirdly pay very close attention to that, not just for Vero, <laughs> but for you know, all the banks that you know are in the space. But you know, I struggle to imagine like the product management prioritization meeting. Like I've, yeah. you know, not recently, but I've spent, you know, many years in those kind of meetings. And typically the debate is something like, you know, how many, I'm having PTSD, how many story points, like <laughs> how much engineering resources is this going to take versus how much revenue or earnings do we think that this is going to drive? And if you think about this, it's like, okay, it's probably going to be fairly complex from an engineering and also compliance standpoint. And it's actually that negative because it, it appears like it's going to cost them money. So I really, you know, if I'm Vero and it's like I'm staring down, you know, my ever shrinking runway, I don't understand why you would prioritize this feature. We're running out of runway. We're about to go off of a cliff and we're going to build this and it's going to help us sort of soar off the cliff safely. I don't. I don't really get it. It's a very strange one. Should we end with one last quick story before we get to Can't Let It Go? I think we got a couple more minutes. Yeah. Do you want to do uh, BNPLAAS? <laughs> yes, I yeah. do. And Bye. I want you to explain what that okay, means. Sorry. I know. We're the worst. Buy now, pay later <laughs> as a service, which is a joke stemming from a recent news story that some fellow sleuth saw some code buried in a firm's app that suggests the company will be testing basically a subscription-style 
service that gives users access to a firm plus because marketers have run out of ideas of how to name things. 0% on a loans up to a total balance of $2,500. So that you know would be potentially multiple purchases up to that aggregate limit. And also the, the Bloomberg reporting made it sound like users could unlock higher interest rates on their savings. So a firm, I think everyone, including me, forgets that a firm has a savings account through a partner bank. So being able to earn higher interest rate by sort of having this monthly membership fee with the the analysis from Bloomberg being that this is, you know, a new way for a firm to drive revenue and user growth. I would add that, you know, Klarna in the US already has a very similar style product, the Klarna card, which I believe is $4.99 per month. And, and off the top of my head, I don't remember exactly what the features are. I mean, it, it's interesting. I feel like on the one hand, it's kind of this like slow reversion to BNPL just becoming a slightly weirder version of a credit card because you're paying this monthly fee so that you don't pay interest. You know, I suppose depending on how you're using it, it, it could still be, you know, economically speaking, like a net positive for the user, but it feels like there's kind of like a niche segment of high frequency users that this would appeal to. I'm really surprised by the idea of monthly fees for this stuff. Cause like, if you look at traditional credit cards, there's something like, I mean, maybe it's less now. It was something like 75% of consumers just refuse to have credit cards with annual fees. They just believe they should be free. There's obviously people who pay for airline cards or whatever, you know, but they just decided like the bank's making money on me somehow. Why would I pay? So then why am I going to go pay $5 a month or $7 or $8 for BNPL loans? Like it's a weird move that you would have to do quite a bit of math you know, for the average person to think about whether that really makes sense for you versus the kind of traditional, like if you spend more, you get higher rewards. You know, if I wanted to drive revenue or more loans, I'd say, hey, if you're doing 10 purchases on a firm a month, you get some benefit you get higher savings rate or something, right? That's the, I think that makes more sense. And you see that with a lot of banks, right? You have higher balances, you earn higher interest. What's funny in the fintech world is it's usually reversed, right? Like, oh, you earn 5% APY unless your balance is over 10,000 that we can't afford it anymore. Whereas your traditional bank goes the other direction, right? And gives you lots of rewards if you have more assets with them. So I always thought that's kind of a funny sign of how some of the incentives are turned around when you're not actually the bank. But I don't know. I'm curious to see who's paying for this kind of, or who would pay for this product or what was the research behind thinking that that's going to actually work because I just think consumers don't want to pay for financial services if they can avoid it. One, well, and I think that's a really good point on the sort of flipped incentives for banks versus non-banks, right? Because like I've always been a big fan of design rewards or incentives or whatever so that the more that someone uses it, the happier everyone is, right? Where your incentives and your business model are aligned. I don't like breakage at all, right? Where it's like, oh, you know, we want you to do this, but if you go past a certain point, then this is actually too expensive for us and we need to stop offering as a benefit. Like then it was never an actual benefit or incentive. It was just like a marketing bullet point that you wanted to be able to put on there. And certainly card issuers and others are guilty of this. I remember like, you know, getting the 
what was it, the price protection benefit? And then we automated that and made it easier for people. And then the car yes. was like, well, actually, no, we're not going to offer that anymore because we didn't really want you to use it. So I'm with you on that, making sure your benefits are aligned with your business model. And I think the other point you make about you know, comparing this to credit cards is a good one, right? Because most people don't want to pay for annual fees. And the people who do pay for annual fees are doing it specifically not to get like lower costs, it's to get rewards. And all of the people who do that, I'm not gonna say all, but the vast majority, they're transactors, right? They don't carry a balance. And so I think you make a really, really good point about the fact that like, if you have this choice in front of you as a consumer, I wouldn't want to do the math on like, okay, is it worth paying this monthly fee so that I can up to a certain amount get 0% interest on loans that would otherwise cost me X? Like, I don't know that you could build a consumer facing calculator on your website that would help people figure out if that's a good deal or not. And I think generally speaking, if you're thinking about offering a subscription service that's supposed to save someone money where it's too complex to give them a calculator to show if it'll save them money or not, that's probably not a good product to offer. So I, I'm similarly sort of confused about who this is for. Should we, uh, Jason is shaking his head. Yeah. He's shaking his head and is completely baffled. Um, <laughs> yes, let's end with our Can't Let It Goes. Matthew, as the guest, we're just going to let you sort of sit there and bask in the rants that Jason and I are Thank about you. to unleash. Are you ready to go? Ready. All right, Jason, you're first. All right, I will keep it brief. I apologize because <laughs> this is... I don't know. It's crypto adjacent, I suppose. In a sure sign that NFTs are are finally, hopefully, dying, I came across an article on Mashable of the latest attempt, I guess, to wring any dollar out of that world, which is a bored ape NFT branded sparkling water, um, <laughs> which I guess that is where we're at in the NFT journey. There was also, on the same sort of wavelength, a Rolling Stone piece, which is not usually where I go for fintech coverage, citing a study about like, you know, 95% of NFTs, you know, have become worthless. I did see an interesting rebuttal from Molly, oof, I'm forgetting her name, but she writes a really great newsletter on crypto and Web3. I think it's called like Web3 is going great. Oh, yeah, she's yeah. the best, yeah. Point out underlying flaws in that study and basically make the argument that 95% of NFTs were always worthless. So if you see a can of ape water at your local store, pick it up because it might be worth something someday. And I will leave it there. It doesn't sound appealing. Yeah. No, I don't want to drink ape water. Ape yeah, water. Sounds bad. Well, weren't the bored apes always kind of like off-putting? Like they, I feel like one of the things that was sort of weird about the NFT boom was we all had to sort of pretend, or and I think in all of our cases, we didn't even bother pretending that like this stuff is good looking and like appealing on a sort of aesthetic level. Like that was always one of the things that sort of threw me off about the whole thing was like, this seems like aggressively, intentionally bad art that's almost designed to be like, how much money do you really want to make? Because you're going to have to stare at this a bunch and it's not very pleasant. Is that too harsh? Is that unfair? So all right, my can't let it go is actually also NFT themed. And it's just, I... I NFTs are great. Now we can just like dance on the grave of NFTs. But there's a, a VC investor named Fred Wilson, who's a very active crypto and Web3 investor, an investor in NFTs. And he shared a story that he wrote about of him accidentally signing a transaction that, that he was sent for his to his Web3 wallet that enabled a thief, very common story, to steal 46 of his most valuable NFTs. And Jason, maybe these are the last 46 NFTs that are still worth something. I'm not totally sure. Um, 
And what was really interesting was he wrote about the experience and, you know, oh my God, I shouldn't have done that. I made a mistake. It's notable to me how many people who are deeply enmeshed in crypto make this mistake, even though they should know better. It sort of is, I guess, a a flaw in the whole sort of self-custody argument anyway. But what was really interesting was after it happened, he went around and tracked them all down and for the most part, managed to convince all of the people who had bought the NFTs from the person who stole them to sell them back to him at cost. So he ended up being out a little bit of money because he had to basically reimburse them because they didn't know they were buying stolen goods. But they sold them back to him at cost. And in fact, he even went to the person who stole a bunch of the NFTs and he bought them back from the thief. And I got to say, I've never ever seen any other market where it's so sort of weirdly polite and civilized where it's like the person who's been robbed is like, it was my fault. I wasn't diligent. I was like walking in a bad neighborhood. I deserve to get robbed. And then like, I'm going to very politely go around and ask all the people who benefited from that robbery to return the goods. And they're like, sure, we'll do that. Like, it's so, I mean, speaking of like fintech multiverses and being on like earth too, this is like earth 99. It's such a weird alternate universe. I guess the moral of the story is that Fred Wilson has too much money. He does. And he was, uh, actually, it's funny, he said that the money he had to spend to get all of his NFTs back was equal to the staking rewards that he was getting for Ethereum for like that week or something. So yes, I don't think that anyone should feel bad for Fred. And once again, like, stay away from NFTs and including in water bottles. Don't click on links that show up on your phone. Yeah. That too. That yeah. too. Yes. We we should send him a case of uh bored ape water as like a consolation for his loss. Yes, yes. Just send us your address and uh, make sure to click accept when we send you a, a thing to your web three wallet. And password and, and social security number as well. Yeah, and, and seed phrase, all of those things. That'd be great. So uh <laughs> with that, we will wrap up. Jason, great to see you as always. And Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. This was really fun. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, make sure to check out Matthew's Substack cards for the win. And Alex, I will see you in Vegas next month, yeah? Money 2020. Will uh, Jason and I will be, I promise this time, actually doing a anniversary yes. in-person yes. FinTech recap episode. Yeah. I have an elaborate apology for Jason and all set up. Alex, so. you stood me up last year too. So, I mean, I no did. You're whatever. right about that. No, it's, I owe so many apologies. Uh, Matthew, you're going to be at Money 2020? Of course. LobbyCon all the way. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I will see you both there in person and uh, really look forward to that. And until then, thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest FinTech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love FinTech Takes, please tell a friend.